you bow with me and let's pray. Father, as you know, I've got the chance this week to spend all my study in one verse out of your word, 1 Peter 3, 7. Uh, just a powerful passage on talking to us husbands on our approach to our wives. So Father, I pray that as we plumb the depths of this this morning, as we take a look at not just what it means, but what it also means for our lives and for how it applies to our lives, I pray you give us wisdom, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. God, more than anything, would you give us the courage, especially as men, to go out of here today and, and live what you've called us to do. So God, we thank you for this time that we've had in worship where we can lift our voices to you, hopefully focus our minds and center our hearts on you. And so as we've done that now, speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' holy and precious name. And the whole church says together, amen. So it's always amazed me that one of the things that binds human beings together that you and I would probably agree on is the fact that, that when things get really rough, we, we love to see a timely and opportune piece of action. Do you know what I mean? Like when people just start to, to really struggle with things in life, that, that, that somebody comes along and through some action, we, we see a turnaround. So I never tire when I, uh, as a pastor when I see marriages struggling and I see one or both of them just, just come together and, and do something, some form of repentance or dropping of pride or learning to communicate or learning to forgive, just some type of action that, that saves the marriage. I love seeing that. Or, or how about in a business setting, like right now with the economy hurting, when things are struggling in the, the business sector, many of the businessmen know that there's going to be some real modes of action that provide the only saving the day for certain companies. Or how about with your children? I know sometimes when children go down the destructive path that, that we know is not good for them, we, what do we teach them? We teach them that a, a sharp turnaround, not going down that path, but taking action and going around the other path is exactly what is needed. Or how about for my favorite football team, the Cleveland Browns? I mean, they need action, don't they? I mean, two and five or something like that. And year after year, it's like the same story for this team. And, and we're just hoping for more action. You get the picture. That most of us have come to respect action when we see it, when we rightly see it in the world around us today. And if you can relate to this or understand it, and I think we all can, then you can understand what this next series that we are in is all about, what this second half of the book of 1 Peter is all about. If you were with us for the last series we just finished last month, you know that we spent the better part of nine weeks over the summer and into the fall looking at 1 Peter chapters 1 and 2, in which Peter lays out for us what the church, you and I, the people of God, look like. You know, what we believe and what makes us Christians and what binds us together. So Peter walked us through some amazing topics like what our identity is as Christians now called the church. Now, what salvation is, what love is, what holiness looks like, even what submission is all about. This series was all about describing for us what God's people are about, who we are now as followers of Jesus that come together and meet together on a regular basis. And yet now, as we get into the second half of this power-packed little letter, Peter all of a sudden like switches from second to fourth gear and starts to describe what we, the people of God, look like in motion. In other words, it's action that he's after. What God's people do, how they function when it comes to some of the more relevant and prevalent things that we all deal with in trying to walk with God this side of heaven. So for instance, he's going to talk to us about marital relationships. He's going to talk to us about how to, how to do good when nobody cares. He's going to talk to us how to deal with that nagging sinful behavior pattern that many of us struggle with at times in our lives. 
He's going to talk with us about how to find joy in our pain. He's even going to talk with us as to how we can finally find humility in our lives and put the nails on the coffin of pride. I mean, think of all the things that you and I know to do as people who are following Christ in this world. Peter's going to get real practical from this point on, kind of like rubber the meeting the road kind of issues, and help us deal with them in our following of Christ. And so last week, Dr. Wayne Grudem, one of my favorite seminary professors from my time at Trinity Seminary back in Chicago in the mid-1980s, and now an elder and Sunday school teacher here at Scottsdale Bible, he led off this series by talking to us about wives submitting to husbands from 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 6. And all I can say is that I'm so glad it was him and not me. Amen? I mean, what a timely time for me to take a study break, like last week. And it, yes, it was by design, and quite frankly, I just felt like there's nobody better qualified to talk about that passage than Dr. Wayne Grudem. It's really true. He's written textbooks on it. He personally and Margaret have an amazing marriage and lived that, and I, oh, I'm just thankful that he was available to do that. And today, I get the privilege of addressing the men here, husbands, how to view and love your wife in such a way that will deepen and grow your relationship with her, in such a way that it would honor God and even give you, as we're going to see, spiritual power as a byproduct. And I just want to let you all know, before we go any further, that all of us here, not just the men or husbands, are going to take something from today. I promise. Because all of us have women in our lives. A wife, a mother, a fiancé, a daughter, a close friend. And what you're going to find is that God gives us rich and transferable wisdom and principles here on how to understand the women that he's placed in our lives. He's speaking specifically to men, but it's going to be applicable for all of us here today, so don't worry. So here's the main point that Peter gives us. Here's what you need to tuck away securely in your relational and spiritual tool belt from this point on, and that is simply this, that a husband needs to be a student of his wife, ever learning who she is and how God has uniquely made her. And that's the message we're going to get today out of 1 Peter that God that calls a husband to be a student of his wife. I like that phrase. Ever learning who she is all the days of his life and even how God has uniquely wired and made her. So look at how Peter says this to us in the one verse that we're looking at here this morning. Short but power packed. Look at 1 Peter 3 verse 7. He says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, Wayne had to deal with the submission issue last week, but you notice that I get the joy of dealing with this weaker vessel issue, right? And if you're tracking with me, you're like going, Jamie, how are you going to deal with that one? Well, just wait and see. I think we're going to make sense of this in a way that doesn't feel as biting as it looks on the outset here. But before we get to that, don't miss what Peter is saying kind of in a, in a more fundamental way when he says there, focus on that phrase, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way. Fascinating phrase, understanding way. If you read the New International Version, you know that your version says this. It says, be considerate with your wives. And not that the New International Version is a bad translation. It's actually a very good and very readable one. But i got to tell you, that doesn't quite at all capture what the original Greek is trying to communicate to us here. It's better understood here in this translation of an understanding way. This is actually the Greek word gnosin that's being used here. And it's a very common Greek word that simply means, I get this, to have knowledge. To know the truth about something or someone. To know them. 
And not just factually or intellectually, but to know them also experientially, like personally and intimacy. It's the kind of knowing that we transfer into the realm of relationship. And so it's fascinating, this word gnosin and all its derivatives appears all throughout the Greek New Testament and even in the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint. And so in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, you know how the King James translated that passage? This will tell you what this word really means. It says, Adam knew, Gnosin, Adam knew Eve, and she bore a son. Do you all know what it's talking about there? It's talking about the sexual relationship. And, and yet it uses this word know to describe that there. Adam knew Eve so intimately, so personally, and they bore a son. That's the idea behind this word. And so it's no coincidence then that the King James translates 1 Peter 3, 7 this way. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge. I like that translation. Dwell with them according to knowledge. Personal, experiential knowledge. Not just being considerate, but know them in an understanding, ever-learning kind of way. And folks, that's precisely what Peter is getting at here. He's saying, men, as you live with your wives and you do live with them, do so in such a way that you're constantly learning about her, constantly delving deeper and deeper into who she really is and how she really functions. In a sense, he's saying, don't buy into the garbage that you hear around you that men are from Venus and women are from Mars and we can't really understand them, but bite the bullet. Enter into the fray and start to really get to know her. Who she is, how God has wired her, her hopes and dreams, even her dashed hopes and her shattered dreams. Peter is saying live with her in an understanding way and ever increasing in your knowledge of her. Be a student of your wife. And once you start to understand that, once you understand the weight and the profundity of what Peter is saying here, the only question becomes, well, Peter, like, what am I supposed to understand? What kind of knowledge am I supposed to grow in? And though the Bible talks about a myriad of things for us, Peter goes on to mention two things here that I find rather interesting. And one of them is like really easy to get, and the other one is like really dicey to understand. And so let's take the dicey one first, and that's that phrase that I mentioned to you earlier, and that's where he says to show honor to your wife as the weaker vessel. In other words, understand that on some level she is more weaker than you. Now let's just say right off the bat, folks, that this is a loaded phrase if there ever was one. Amen? I mean, men, I would not encourage you to come in at Tuesday night at 5 and say to your wife, hi, weaker vessel. It's just not going to work. In, in other words, we don't use a phrase like that to describe somebody. It doesn't seem to be a very complimentary phrase on the outset. And so we got to ask ourselves, what is Peter getting at here? Let's try to understand this before we jump to any conclusions. And to help do this, I want to engage right now in a little exercise that you'll think you'll find kind of fun, kind of a multiple choice quiz that's going to draw out what this meaning might be getting at here, okay? And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put this up on the screen in just a minute here, a statement followed by four options, A, B, C, or D. And what I want you to do is as I walk you through each of these options that completes the statement, I want you to, in your mind or on your notes, put a check mark or an X by each one, A, B, C, or D. And so you'll see what it means in a minute, but basically it's a multiple choice test in which either one or more of these is correct and maybe some aren't correct, okay? Just a sort of way to draw out and get us all on the same page as to what Peter might be getting at here. So here we go. Here's the statement. Generally speaking, women are not as strong as men, and here's A, physically. True or not? Put a check mark or an X by it, either in your mind or on your notes. We'll get to the answer in just a minute, but generally speaking... Women are not as strong as men 
physically. And please note for all of these that I'm saying generally speaking. In other words, when you look at all the women in the world and all the men in the world, is it generally true that men are stronger than women physically? I mean, invariably, I know somebody's going to come up to me after today and say, I know a woman that could beat you up. And you know what my response will be to that? I'm going to say, so do I. I mean, I was out golfing with a couple the other day, and I'm telling you, this woman is just an amazing golfer. She's better than her husband, and she outdrove us on every hole. I got to tell you, that doesn't happen to me very often. I'm not too weak of a guy, but she was out driving us. Anomalies happen. But generally speaking, ask yourself here, are women, are women not as strong as men physically? Now, here's B. Hang on to that. Generally speaking, women are not as strong as men morally. In other words, they are weaker when it comes to being able to resist temptation, make moral choices, and stand behind their morality. Yes or no, check mark or X. You be the judge. Third, C, generally speaking, women are not as strong as men mentally, intellectually, thinking-wise, in their ability to rationalize. Yes or no, check mark or X. And then finally, D, generally speaking, women are not as strong as men emotionally. Now, this one is more tricky, but just answer it. Yes or no in your mind, check mark or X. Now, here's what I want to do with this. I want to walk you through each one of these. And as I do, I'm going to share with you the results of my research into this when it comes to what Bible experts say, both historically and today. I've researched over a dozen of them on my study break. And exactly what they think Peter is getting at here. Is it one of these or all of these or, or what is it? And so let's walk through each one. You're going to find this fascinating. So first, physically. This is the most obvious one. And what you need to know is that just about every Bible expert on 1 Peter posits that at the very least, and some say at the very most, Peter is re referencing here the fact that women, by their physical makeup, are not indeed as strong as men, and that men, we should understand this because the Bible implies that we need to be protectors and providers for our families and our homes. So he's saying honor them as the weaker vessel, weaker physically, just by their physical makeup. And I think almost all of us would say that this goes without saying, right? In other words, we know that, that women, generally speaking, tend to not be as strong as men. And could it be that God then provided men in the family in part to be protectors and providers? Some argue that this is clearly what Peter is getting at. Some say it's the only thing that he's getting at. Now hang on to that. Moving along, let's grade B and C, morally and mentally. And you'll be happy to know that there isn't one Bible expert that I could find, not one, that would assert that men are stronger, stronger than women morally or mentally. In fact, none suggest that this is what Peter is getting at. And I found that fascinating. I mean, Christianity tends to have the reputation today, at least historically, as being very archaic. You know, at, at being the kind of thing that just judges everybody and certainly holds women down. And, and, and in part, there, there's certainly some truth to that, at least in how people have historically responded in culture. But I found it fascinating that going back at least the last two, three hundred years, there wasn't one reputable commentator that suggested that Peter here is saying that women are morally or mentally weaker than men. And I would even add that we all know women who are actually stronger in their convictions and stronger in their reasoning and mental acuity than the men they've ended up with. Amen? I mean, I just know women like that. I meet with a couple and I go, man, she's a lot smarter than he is. And so that can't be what Peter is getting at here. And so we have to put an X by these. We have a check by physical, X by these two. 
But what about D? What about emotional? Now listen close. It is certainly true that there are a vast number of women who demonstrate tremendous emotional strength, even surpassing their husbands. And so in one sense, one could not argue that women are weaker emotionally than men, especially when it comes to foundational emotional stamina and resolve. But in another sense, think about it with me, I think we would all agree, however, that women are, generally speaking, more emotionally sensitive than men, right? I mean, I find most women are more emotionally sensitive than men. That they're more in touch with their feelings, they're more attuned to the emotional climate around them, that they're better at the fineries of relationship than most men are. In fact, if you were to ask Kim about our marriage, she would say Jamie's got some wonderful strengths. He's a clueless clod on an emotional level. She would say that he keeps trying for layups and I'm the one shooting the three-pointers. That's the way that she would describe it. And I find that's relatively normal in many marriages, that, that the woman tends to be much more emotionally sensitive. Now, if you believe that at all, here's what some Bible experts argue then. They say that this is obviously a great blessing that a woman is wired this way, but it's also a great vulnerability for a woman. That a woman, because of her heightened emotional sensitivity, is liable to take things very personal and to heart on an emotional level. That she's likely to get hurt on an emotional level, more, more likely to get hurt. That she's more likely to feel pain and fatigue on the emotional, of the, with emotional situations around her. And so the question is, could Peter be getting to this as well? Could he be suggesting that women are not just physically vulnerable in their obvious physical makeup, but that emotionally there's a great strength but also a great vulnerability and that men, you need to understand this and honor this in them. And I think there's something to this, guys. That if indeed this is what Peter is getting at, what a great and wonderful challenge this becomes to you and to me in understanding and loving our wives and even our daughters and the women around us. You know, it's fascinating where our culture has come. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but there's been a subtle change in the way that we do marriage ceremonies, even in the evangelical church over the last 30 years. And what I mean by that is that we used to take different vows as men and in women, and now, I don't know if you noticed, the vows are all the same. So, for instance, we used to say for men to love, honor, and cherish, right, till death do us part. And for the woman, we used to say love, honor, and obey till death do us part. But you see, that didn't fit our egalitarian culture today, and so people kind of dissed that, what, 30, 40 years ago, and now in most weddings that I observe, it's to love, honor, and cherish for both parties. And forget about your theology behind it for a minute, whether you agree or not agree with that. My point is, is that I'm not sure we've done men any justice in our understanding of our role as husbands by not honoring that we have a unique responsibility toward our women to cherish them. In fact, that's a very tender thing for Kim and I. Now, Kim loves the fact that my vow is to love her, to honor her, and to cherish her to value her in her femininity, to see her in all that God has wired her to be, her physical makeup, her emotional makeup, her mental makeup, and honor her, to cherish her, to value her, to protect her at times, to encourage her, even to challenge her. And the focus is on her. That's what that vow was intended to do. To say, men, you have a woman in your life right now that you're to be a student of for the rest of your life. To know her and to love her, to see her as uniquely feminine. And to cherish that and protect it at all costs. To love, 
to honor and to cherish. That's what Peter is getting at here. Not just some intellectual thing, but a knowledge that goes deeply into your experience. That's the command. Now we're going to put all this together in just a minute. But isn't it fascinating that just at this point, right when Peter is hitting us men in the middle of the forehead with this truth of our wives needing to be honored and cherished for their physical vulnerabilities and emotional makeup, that he tells us a second key thing about our wives. And that is, did you notice this? He says they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Heirs with you of the grace of life. As if to say, and lest you think that they are somehow or in any way less than you, like weaker in the sense of less than, think again. I mean, Peter tells us here, this word literally means joint heirs. One of our Sunday school classes is, is called that, joint heirs. It means co-heirs of all the blessings that God has given us, all the spiritual privileges and image-bearing qualities that he has bestowed on human beings. He's saying you're equal there. As Galatians 3.28 would say, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Heirs together. Don't miss this, men. It's like Peter is trying to ward off any negative misunderstanding of this phrase, weaker vessel, by reminding us right away that our wives are journey mates for us in life. Co-heirs of all the graces that God has given us, including the greatest grace of eternal life as we follow Jesus. It's like Peter is saying, hey men, don't think that I'm at all trying to diminish women when I refer to them as weaker vessels. I'm not. I am saying this in a tone of equality and respect. Yes, there are clear created differences between you and your wife, physically and emotionally. Yes, there are even roles that you're going to play within family and the church, and there's going to be things like submission and all that I've talked about. But you should honor and love her for these. Never forget that she is a co-heir with you of all that you've received from Almighty God through Jesus Christ. And then as if to hammer this reality to us home, Peter ends this short but potent challenge to men with this phrase, and this takes the cake. He says, so that your prayers might not be hindered. And we say, whoa, my prayers be hindered? What's that about? Hey, this word hindered here is a Greek word, ekapto. And it literally means to thwart or to impede or to hinder something. It's fascinating. This word is used by Paul the Apostle to talk about, you remember this, when he says that I've been hindered from going to certain churches. He writes to certain churches say, I've been thwarted, hindered from coming to you. I can't get through. I can't make it to the destination that I want to get to. And that's Peter's point. He's saying that men who fail to love their wives with rich and deep understanding, combined with honoring their unique femininity and treating them as co-heirs, that their spiritual walk is going to suffer as a result of that, and that their prayers aren't even going to get through. Like Paul the Apostle trying to visit a church, but constantly getting cut off and impeded. Men who fail to love their wives, as outlined here, he says their prayers are never going to make their intended destination. Or to put it in more principal form so that you can take it home with you, because this is what he's really saying. He says, realize that God responds to husbands very similar to how husbands respond to wives. That in almost a tit-for-tat fashion, that's what Peter's saying, that God is going to respond to us men as husbands, or us as men, in the same way that we respond to our wives. In other words, to the degree and kind that a man loves his wife is to the degree that God will listen to his prayers and move in his life. What a sobering truth. I mean, let that sink in a minute, men. God places such a premium on your marriage 
He believes so deeply in a husband's call to love, understand, and honor his wife that he ties this directly to your spiritual life and to your walk with him. And I know how some of you think. You're thinking right now, well, Jamie, is God really this way? I mean, will God really do something like that? In a word, yes. Of course he would. It's no different than what you do with your children. I mean, when your children are going down a destructive path that you know is wrong for them, you do things, maybe withhold things from them or bring some sort of correction to their life to jar them awake to get them to go to the other path, right? It's just good parenting. It's parenting 101. The reality is, is that God loves you so much, husband. Listen close. He loves you so much that when you're down a path in which he knows is destructive to your family, that's destructive to you, that's destructive to your kids, he's going to do anything to try to wake you up. It's a corrective thing, not a punishment. He's going to do anything because he loves you, even block your prayers from getting through. It's his way of trying to wake you up. I love how the famous pastor Adrian Rogers, who is now with the Lord, said it years ago. He said, God loves you so much that he will bring you to your knees by invitation or situation. <laughs> and he's right. And that he's going to get your attention somehow, whether you hear his call or whether he has to shake your life. And for men who continue to dishonor their wives through selfishness and anger and lack of honor, God is going to mess with your prayer life. He's going to do anything to get you to say, what's going on, God? Why am I not spiritually strong? Why, why, why do I feel spiritually anemic in my life? He's going to say, look to your family. Look to how you're treating your bride. And Peter's point is that it obviously doesn't have to be this way. I mean, only the last eight words out of 38 words in this verse here are negative. Only the last eight are in a warning tone. The first 30 are all positive in nature. Peter's main point is that we as men can learn to selflessly and courageously understand and pour into and love our wives. And as we do, there's profound blessing to be found joy in our relational and spiritual lives. I want to close uh, this morning by telling you a, a, a true story that is going um, to hit you in the pump, I promise. Robertson and Muriel McQuilkin were married in 1949. They had a dream of becoming a young missionary couple, and so in 1949, shortly after they were married, they went to the mission field and spent 12 years in Japan. But like a lot of missionaries, it didn't really work out for them like they thought, and so they still had a passion for missions, but Robertson was more of an academician, so he came back here to the United States, and Robertson eventually became the very successful president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary, now called Columbia International University in South Carolina. And in 1980, while vacationing with some friends, Robertson noticed that his wife repeated a story to one couple that she had just told about five minutes earlier. By 1983, her forgetfulness became so apparent that they had to stop entertaining friends at home because she was having difficulty planning menus. And so two expert diagnoses later, and they had a name for her ailment, you guessed it, it was called Alzheimer's disease. At that time, Robertson was at the height of his career as the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary. I mean, the thing was just growing like wildfire. He's in his mid to late 50s. They had seven children at home that they were also, uh, and now started to grow and were, were making their own ways. I even went to school with one of them, their son Kent. And at this point, Robertson tried real hard to maintain his job as the president of a growing and burgeoning Bible College and Seminary, but he found it very hard to do. Muriel was going downhill fast. She had to give up her radio ministry as well as many other speaking engagements. She even got to the point in the mid-80s where she had forgotten she had Alzheimer's and 
and it was getting very difficult. And so so Robertson sought out the wisdom of many of his friends at that time, and, and the thing that kept coming back to him is that his most trusted friends urged him to consider institutionalized care for Muriel. Their argument wasn't all bad. They basically just said that in about two or three years, she's not even going to recognize you anymore, and so you might as well put her in a home and visit her on a regular basis. But Robertson writes, and I quote, he says, but, but, but would this be the right solution? He says, would anyone love her at all, let alone love her as I do? I'd often seen the empty, listless faces of those lined up in wheelchairs along the corridors of such places, waiting for the fleeting visit of some loved one. In such an environment, I was sure Muriel would be tamed only with drugs or bodily restraints, and of that I was confident. And so without an afterthought, in 1988, he told the board that he was going to have to resign as president to care for Muriel. As you can imagine, the board didn't want him to resign, so they said, well, well, why don't we just provide for you a companion that all day long can watch Muriel, and then you can care for her at night. He said, well, let's try it. So they provided a companion for Muriel. By that point, the only one that Muriel knew and recognized was Robertson, And so in a panic, get this, every day she would find a way to sneak out of the house, run a mile to the seminary, she knew the way, and show up at at Robertson's office just for some comfort. One day Robertson was putting her to bed after a few months of this, and he noticed that because of 12 trips that she had made to the seminary that day, her feet were blistered and bloodied. She was so desperate to be with him. And so in the year 1990, stunning the evangelical world, because all of us in my business see this kind of stuff, Robertson announced to the board he's had enough and that he was resigning as a president to care for Muriel full-time. By 1991, Muriel was, was going downhill so fast that the only words she could offer, utter were, I love you. By 1993, she had become such a child that she had even lost control of bodily movements. By 1994, she could not stand or speak or talk and was resigned to a wheelchair. But Robertson writes that she could move and she could hug and she could smile, something that she would do every day with Robertson. Ironically, Muriel lived 13 years after Robertson resigned as the president of the seminary. 13 years. She didn't die until 2003. And every day, Robertson cared for her. I want to play for you the actual words of Robertson McQuilkin when he shared why he was resigning with the student body at Columbia. I want to play for you the words from 1990 of what Robertson said and his reason why, and I'm going to warn you right now, it's powerful. It's a powerful picture of 1 Peter 3, 7 and what a husband does to honor and love his wife. Look up here on the screen, and then we'll wrap this up. I haven't in my life experienced easy decision-making on major decisions, but uh, one of the simplest and clearest decisions I've had to make is this one, because circumstances dictated it. Uh, Muriel... Now, uh, in the last couple of months, seems to be almost happy when with me and almost never happy when not with me. In fact, she seems to feel trapped, becomes very fearful, sometimes almost terror. And when she can't get to me, there can be anger. She's in distress. But when I'm with her, She's happy and contented. And so I must be with her at all times. And you see, it's not only that I promised in sickness and in health till death do us part. And I'm a man of my word. But as I have said, I don't know with this group, but I've said publicly, it's the only fair thing 
She sacrificed for me for 40 years to make my life possible. So, if I cared for her for 40 years, I'd still be in debt. However, there's much more. It's not that I have to, it's that I get to. I love her very dearly, and you can tell it's not easy to talk about. She's a delight. It's a great honor to care for such a wonderful person. of too many men that would do such a thing for their wives, but that's what Peter's writing about. I, I got to tell you a funny story about six weeks ago when I was in Cairo, Egypt with Fred Beasley. We were there uh, looking at some of our mission works, and we were trying to pioneer some new work with the largest church in the Middle East there that I was speaking at, and that we were meeting with a senior pastor to talk about how we could partner together. At one point, they took us about a mile or an hour and a half outside of Cairo, Egypt to their large ministry center that they're building, and it, it's quite a place where they're, you know, have a sports complex and a conference center for ministries in the Middle East. And at one point, the senior pastor had to leave us. He had a meeting, so he said, just go to the cafeteria and get something to eat. So we went there, and as we were heading there, I noticed a big bus pulled up, and a bunch of people got out for a conference. We came to find out that it was a big brethren group that was there learning how to do Muslim evangelism, and I was there for a conference. And at one point um, in lunch, an elderly man came down and sat across from us. And Fred Beasley struck up a conversation with him, and I was kind of eating away. And at one point, Fred said, my name's Fred Beasley. And the man looked at him and said, my name's Robertson McQuilkin. And I looked up, stopped eating. I said, you mean Robertson McQuilkin from Columbia Bible College and Seminary? He said, yeah, that, that's me. He's 82 years old, and I, I embarrassed all of you. I, I got up from my chair, and I ran around the table. And he kind of stood up because he saw me coming at him. And I just gave him the biggest old bear hug you could ever give somebody. And I said to him, I said, I have heard of you for years. I've never met you. I went to seminary with one of your sons, Kent, and I said, it is such a privilege to meet you. I'm so excited to meet you. And I could tell he wasn't the hugging kind because he didn't give me his contact information or anything like that when we were done, but I was just so thrilled to see such a man. And I told him, I said, I, I just can't thank you enough for your testimony. He's such a humble guy. He was almost self-effacing about the whole thing. But you know, you don't hear too many stories like what we just saw with a guy like Robertson McQuilkin. And here's the deal, men. You might never be called to do something like Robertson did. You might never be called to make a huge, like, career sacrifice for your wife. But if I don't miss my guess, a guy like Robertson never got to the place that he got by just making one big decision. I'll bet you that he got there by daily small decisions, amen, of what it means to honor his wife. And that's what faces you and I. Now, are we or are we not, as men, going to listen to Peter and honor our wives daily in all the small ways. I know for me many times, it means that when I come home after a very long day and I'm exhausted and I'm tired, but Kim needs to emotionally process some things with me and I need to listen and be there, that's what she needs for me. That's how I honor her. I know there's certain things that she likes that makes her feel cherished and loved. I won't bore you with those things, but certain things that just communicate love to her. I've learned her love language. That's how I honor her. There's even times where I need to speak truth to Kim and enter into that tunnel of chaos and, and, and work with her in issues. It's a way of honoring her. You get the picture. And the reality is all of you have those things too. And you know what holds most men back? Tell me if this isn't true. Is that we're just not good at some of those more emotional, relational things. And so what do we do as men? We avoid the things that we're not good at. And along comes Peter. And he says, 
No more excuses. Enter into the tunnel of chaos and trust God. He's going to help you with this. I know how some of you think. You think as men, well, Jamie, that might be easy for you. You've had counseling training and, you know, you're a pastor and you seem to have married up and all that other stuff. And, you know, like, it's not hard for you. And, you know, I might be the first one to admit that. I got an amazing wife. But here's the deal. Is that, no, I might not understand your circumstances. God does. Amen? And God has asked you to do the same things he's asked me to do. And as we learned a few weeks back with this unwavering faith, unconditional love thing, God's not going to ask you to do anything that he won't equip you to do. And so he will equip you. You have to take the steps to obey him and follow him. So here's what I want to do. I want all the men right now to stand. I want all the men to stand, all the women to remain seated. And as we close our service, I want to pray a special blessing upon you men that God would equip you and enable you to respond in whatever way he's calling you to respond to the women around you and especially to your wife. So why don't you bow with me and let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you that once again your word comes along and though it can be hard-hitting at times, very, very clearly tells us what it is that you ask of us. And God, there's really, really it's not unclear at all what you've said. We need to understand our wives. We need to be students of them and pouring into them in a way that honors and loves them and for their unique femininity, at the very least physical and most likely moving into the emotional realm as well. And God, you've asked us to communicate to them that we're co-heirs together. And Lord, to take this so seriously that we tie our spiritual walk to it. It's not unclear. And yet, Father, like so many things in life, it's easier said than done. And so as we started off today on an action note, we want to end that way too. And God, I pray your richest blessing upon these men here. I pray, God, that you would equip them and enable them to be the kind of men who with courage and with love move into the realm of their wives. And Lord, some of them are just jamming already on this level. They're just doing great. I pray you continue to give them that grace and that strength. Help them to continue to keep on keeping on in the areas that their wives would say they're already excelling in. But Lord, if I don't miss my guess, there's some of us men that still have a long way to go. And God, I pray that if nothing else today, that you would give them the courage and the faith in you and the love for their wife around them to move towards center. And Lord, to stop being ones who deny or distance themselves. But Lord, to enter into the tunnel of chaos and trust you to show the way. Lord, bring resources their way. It might be counseling. It might be some other men to help. It might be just more time spent with you. God, whatever it takes, just give them wisdom and give them the resources. But Lord, may we all be men of integrity and honor what you have said in your word and honor the women that you've put in our lives. And so God, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your grace and for your movement in our lives. We look forward to that as we follow you and trust you. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen. God bless you. Have a great day. We'll see you next week.